Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Wolverine 24-7 Podcast, your audio source for all things Michigan football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Zach Shaw. Steve Lorenz is here with me, and we are talking Michigan's 44-10 win over Michigan State, the biggest win over Michigan State since 2002 when it was 49-3. Uh, that was, what, Bobby Williams last last year, uh, train wreck of a season. Lots to talk about. Uh, you know, some un- some Michigan State stuff. Uh, I know we don't normally talk about Michigan State, but uh, certainly some relevant discussion there. And then plenty of Michigan discussion, offensive explosion. Um, you know, defense continued to look like the defense. And suddenly, suddenly, you know, you look at the final few games of the season and you wonder if they can, they can hang with Ohio State. So first, uh, for those that are new to the show, we do two game balls, we do four key takeaways, and then we do seven questions. Uh, some, most come from listeners. We come up with a couple ourselves. Uh, but Steve, we can jump right into game balls. Pretty obvious for number one. I'll let you take it. Uh, who are you picking? It's got to be Patterson. Thought it was his best game as a Wolverine yesterday. And, you know, regardless of the level of opponent, because, you know, like I, I think, you know, Michigan State just not really good. But, you know, Patterson made a lot of, very difficult throws yesterday. Uh, I even go back to the first drive on third and what 15 that throw to Bell. You know, he was making a lot of big throws yesterday. A lot of throws that really, be honest, we hadn't really seen much of this year. And uh, it really kind of seemed to all come together for him yesterday, which, you know, when we previewed the game, that's what we talked about. Michigan, this could maybe be the week. Maybe they try to get the passing game going. And I mean, that's exactly what they did. They didn't need to run the football yesterday. So, you know, another notch, I guess, on the belt for Michigan as far as, you know, things seem to be starting to click for them at the right time. Getting Patterson going right now, building that confidence in this offense is about as best case scenario as you could have asked for yesterday, you know, in a, in a big game against, against a rival. So got to be Patterson for me. Yep. And <laughs> I'd, I'd echo a lot of that. I did write about it. Uh, for those that don't know, we are writers who cover Michigan football. You can check out our stories over at, and recruiting and basketball. You can check out our stories over at the michiganinsider.com, michigan.247sports.com. We write a lot more than we podcast, so plenty of interesting stuff to read there. Yeah, I agree with Patterson. For the second game ball, probably go to the guy he threw to the most, Ronnie Bell, 150 yards. I probably should have researched this before I started the podcast. The last time someone had 150 yards receiving I imagine I mean obviously J.U. Chesson against um against Indiana but it, it hasn't really happened a ton under Harbaugh I mean they are not a they're not usually a throw it to this guy double digit times in a game kind of team and sometimes that's a strength uh obviously the statistics you know they haven't had a thousand yard receiver under Harbaugh um you know there are some teams do it, some teams don't. Michigan generally doesn't, but it's clear Shea Patterson loves throwing to Ronnie Bell. Uh, it's clear that they have a great chemistry, and it's clear that Bell makes plays. And I mean, he gets open, whether it's in the flats, whether it's downfield, middle, sidelines. He makes plays, and he was a big difference in in helping Michigan break Michigan State's back early. Because I I do think I do think Michigan was going to win kind of no matter how it happened, but for them to score three straight times to close the first half, 
and be really efficient passing. I mean, Patterson completed 11 of 12 passes, a whole bunch of those to Ronnie Bell. Uh, seven of his nine catches were in the first half. You know, I, I put put the Spartans away pretty early. So anyway, they he gets the second game ball. Um, pretty pretty obvious, I'd say. I mean, I, I I'd be curious if anyone really had a an argument for anyone else. Maybe an offensive lineman. There was pretty good protection overall. Anyway, on to takeaways. I'll start. And I will say we are going to focus on Michigan State for this one. We have a couple that are that are Michigan driven, but Michigan State's decline is just I mean it's staggering really. It's not inconceivable that as Penn State and Michigan got good that Michigan State was going to kind of take maybe a back seat, but it is just it's just incredible that I mean I I don't see how D'Antonio is coaching Michigan State next season. I just, I can't even fathom a way that they package that. Uh, and it is just, I guess, I guess what I would say is that this is, this is going to look, you know, three, three years from now, I imagine that this kind of game is going to look kind of like the norm for Michigan because they're not going to get any better next season. You know, Lewerke's gone. Their their entire defensive line. I, I think uh, Jacob Panashuk is still around, but the but the other three Williams, the other Panashuk and and Willikis are gone. Bachi obviously is gone. Um, you know, Josiah Scott is gone. I believe David Dowell is gone. Yeah, yeah, yep, Dowell. I yeah. mean, these th- that's like probably their seven best players. <laughs> Elijah Collins is a nice player. Daryl Stewart, Stewart gone too. Always oh, okay. Pretty sure. Okay, and so it's yeah. just it is. They are in, and and I don't. You know, I don't know. I guess stranger things have happened, but they are now twenty four and twenty four since the twenty fifteen season ended, and it is just. I don't. It doesn't erase what D'Antonio did, but it it sure blemishes it. I mean, I. I, I don't know. Hard to hard to think of another program that just slid so far so quickly, because you have teams that that kind of fade. I think you could argue the way Lloyd Carr's teams were looking in the you know, 2005 and 2007 that that maybe there was a a slide even if he remained the coach. But three, you know, three and nine, ten and three. Credit credit where credits due. Uh, ten and three. And then seven and six, and then probably six and six this season. But you don't even know if they'll beat Maryland. You do think they'll beat Rutgers when they were thirty-six and five the previous three years. So go from thirty-six and five to now twenty-four and twenty-four. It 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 plays. I mean that that's just it's just crazy to watch how far this thing has has faded. Because the year before Harbaugh was, Harbaugh took over. Michigan State was basically doing the exact same thing that Michigan did. Their stadium was going nuts. They were running up the score. They were doing whatever they wanted. So credit to Michigan for being really good. But and I think this is similar to your takeaway. But Michigan State has really, really fallen, and and. I don't know when they get out. I guess that's kind of my takeaway. I don't know when when this what, what you saw on Saturday. 
I don't know when that is corrected. Technically, it could happen next year. I just don't see how. I really don't. Steve, what's what's your first takeaway? Well, it is sort of along those same lines. It's really as, uh, you know, so we talked about right now everything Michigan does really comes down to, okay, how, what does this mean for them? Well, now in two weeks. But, you know, right. probably basically since they were eliminated from playoff contention, you know, everything really became a, what does this mean for Ohio State? And, you know, my thing is, is, you know, Michigan State was so disappointing yesterday that I don't, like, not saying you can't take away a lot of good things from Michigan going forward. We just talked about, you know, really it may be more of an intangible takeaway than the tangibles as far as this game probably really maybe that confidence boost that Patterson needed late in the season, kind of take that next step, played his best game. But, you know, it's almost like you don't want to take too much away from it because this was such a mismatch. Um, rivalry aside, you know, and that, and that was the kind of the thing – Looking back, watched some of the highlights, watched a healthy amount of the game, actually rewatched a healthy amount of it last night. And yeah, I mean, although Michigan State did score first, like I predicted in the over under, by the way. Um, there you go. Yep, I'll take that one. Um, this was still a game. It was, wasn't your typical, you know, MSU scores first. It wasn't your typical, oh boy, this might be a game. You know, it just still felt like Michigan. Look like the better team. This year they punched it in the end zone a few more times than they did last year. You know, you remember last year's game, Michigan out was out, you know, had outmatched them, but, you know, maybe left a lot of points out on the, right, on the field. Right. This year they didn't really do that. So, you know, again, I think there's I think there's a healthy amount to take away from it, the game, but I'm, I caution to take away too much just because, you know, I just, this isn't the same Michigan State team that, you know, Michigan has been accustomed to playing under D'Antonio. So uh, that was kind of my big takeaway. You know, we'll see. Like I said, I think maybe it could be more of an intangibles type deal as far as what they can take away. And mostly due to, or mostly in regards to Patterson. Mm -hmm. And maybe the offensive line too, who, you know, for most for the most part, gave him all day to throw the football yesterday. And, and we talked about Michigan State's defensive line was maybe the one unit that, was close to maybe matching Michigan right. on paper. Right. So, you know, for Michigan to kind of neutralize them pretty easily, in my opinion, you know, is, is maybe something that they can build some confidence around to finish off the season. So, uh, but yeah, that just didn't feel the same uh, as other wins maybe have against Michigan State. Here's a stat I will throw in there to, to, help, to help listeners understand this point. So they, they lost Joe Bocci. They've played two games since then. In those two games, the quarterbacks they have faced are Brandon Peters and Shea Patterson. And while, you know, certainly solid quarterbacks, they neither of them had ever thrown for 300 yards. They combined to throw for 753 yards in back-to-back -back weeks, including seven touchdowns. I mean, that is just... You know, all of a, all of a sudden, they're making, they can make everyone every quarterback looked like a Heisman contender because Brandon Peters threw for 369. Patterson threw for 384. I mean, it's just, and it's out of nowhere. It's like both quarterbacks are kind of averaging around. I think both were under averaging less than 200 yards passing per game and just went bananas. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. You know, as, as much as, 
you know, 44-10, as much as that seems like a triumphant, perfect day, you almost wonder, oh, is this like beating Mar- Is it closer to beating Maryland 38-7, or is it closer to beating Notre Dame 45-14? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, it's hard to say it's closer to beating Maryland, but I... That's pretty much what my argument was about a minute ago. Hey, Michigan State just lost to Illinois at home. Right, right. Well, Illinois is not the same Illinois, but it, sure. I, your point yeah. still your point is still taken. Um, yeah, I don't know though. It is still a rivalry game. The two teams still don't like each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Michigan State did come out with some intensity as you expected. You know, but I don't know. Maybe it's in the middle. I suppose. I mean, it's it's still a. You know, to beat a rival that badly, I guess I think a lot of people would say it doesn't matter what, you know, it wasn't that the cliche heading in, doesn't matter what the records are, right? Yeah. Although, <laughs> technically, I think it kind of does, but, you know, it, I'd say it's maybe it's in the middle. I, again, just my thing is, is just for people not to take too much away. You know, like I said, take some away because mm-hmm. there were a lot of good things we saw in the field yesterday, but, you know. Right. Not predicting Michigan to win in two weeks because of what happened yesterday. Right. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. You know, it, it actually impacted my stories because I'm like looking, I'm like, that's it's one one way I look at stories is I think of, I look at the box score for a little bit and kind of pour over the stats after every game. And I, I try to think like what stands out to me, what what's significant. So, you know, we had a story about Shea Patterson. I'll have a story about Ronnie Bell tonight. And there are other, there are, obviously there are other factors. Josh Metellus mentioned classiness after the game. So, you know, that stood out to me without, not on the box score. But I'm looking at this box score and, and there are some cool, interesting stats and some uh, telling or significant numbers. But there's been a couple of them where, a couple storylines where I'm like, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to write a story off this. I mean, kind of, not quite it's Rutgers, but. But it's kind of like, well, it is a team that is not not totally, you know, not totally their fault. They've had a ton of injuries, and obviously Joe Bocci, what was he, two year captain? He had uh, he was on track to have a third straight one hundred tackle season. That's a significant loss. It was no matter how you slice it. Now he did it to himself, but it is significant. But my takeaway, one one takeaway I, I do think, just because it's been three games now, I think I think uh maybe us and and others we might be eating our words a little bit because I the offense, maybe it needed time after all. You know, it's 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 back way back when when new offensive coordinators would come in, there'd be a lot of, well, it needs probably a month or two to to really get the chemistry, get the timing, get the, you know, the time on task, get everything ironed out. And then, but then some, some coaches and coordinators and they've been able to make this switch instantly. You know, perhaps, perhaps Ryan Day and first year starting quarterbacks, back-to-back years, Lincoln Riley, first year head coach, three, you know, maybe three straight Heisman winners. Alabama with um, with Tua and Mike Loxley and how quick of an impact he made. But I'm wondering, I mean, this offense looks really, really good. I mean, this the last three weeks, I think, 
And, you know, granted, Notre Dame, they were running the ball more. At Maryland was kind of, they weren't going to throw it a ton anyways. But if you combine the last three weeks, it that's really what everyone thought they were getting in week one or in week week three or whatever. And so maybe maybe it did need time. You know, Joe Moorhead made it happen in year one at Penn State, but but maybe maybe Gaddis just needed a, a little bit more time, and because it, it looks really good, the play calling, Michigan State was on its heels so much, the receivers are getting open, they're better at getting open. Shea Patterson looks looks more comfortable. They still haven't had an offensive turnover in in the last three games. I mean, they had the one on the punt return to snap the streak at, what, 14 quarters or whatever. It, it looks like a good offense. I mean, and I think, I think was it was it Shea that said it after the game and uh, when Khalid Hudson came and brought him the Paul Bunyan trophy and uh, Shea was like, yeah, usually usually we have to go out of our way to thank the defense and, and today was the opposite. Um, kind of interesting, interesting thing given... You know, I, I go back to some of the things that we said after the Wisconsin game where we were wondering if they made the wrong decision to, to speed up the offense, to spread things out a little bit more. Now, I do think Michigan, one thing that helps them is I think they found a happy medium. I think they, they scaled back some of the changes. But it looks really good. This looks like an offense that maybe maybe fourth best in the Big Ten behind Ohio State, Penn State, Minnesota. I mean, that's maybe that doesn't sound that good. Maybe I can see where Michigan fans want the want the first best offense, but at the same time, it's probably looked like a top 25, top 30 offense the last three weeks. And as you mentioned, the offensive line got really good. That helps. Shea has gotten better. The receivers one thing to note is the the non Ronnie Bell receivers missed so much of the off season. Maybe the chemistry needed to be there. Comfort with the place. I, I think the offense. It turns out it did need time because it looks really good now. So, uh, Steve, I just because we were both kind of wondering which takeaways to do, I'll prompt you with this one. Uh, but. There has to be some takeaway here with the recruiting impact. These two teams, they don't go toe-to-toe a ton with recruits, but with in-state recruits, it certainly certainly makes a difference. Um, any takeaways from the recruiting standpoint for what this win can do? Yeah, I mean, anytime you beat the in-state rival, you know, I think it's going to have a tangible recruiting impact. I'm looking at Michigan State's 2020 class right now. And uh, not good. It's ranked like 44th nationally, isn't it? 44th in the country and 10th in the Big Ten, which is, yeah, again, not not good. Their best, their highest ranked prospect in state is the 17th ranked player in the state, according to the composite. I'm not sure if they lead the crystal ball for anybody that's ranked higher within the state either. Um. It's <laughs> that might be its own takeaway. What what, what worse, happened? Worse than I, you know, really can kind of recall that. My they here's the thing is you know they've always they've always kind of had their own style of recruiting, but sure, 
you know, that's why I said the, I think before we got on, I said the, the thing is, is it, D'Antonio's proven that he can overcome a talent gap, but I think the gap in talent between Michigan, Michigan State, really Michigan State and the top of the Big Ten East is growing at a very, very significant rate. And so, you know, biggest recruiting takeaway obviously is, you know, the, the Michigan, the opportunity there is for, you know, for Michigan to kind of seize any of the in-state momentum that they may not have already had. Although I still believe, really, I think Ohio State and Notre Dame, probably still the two programs that are going to give Michigan the most issue for the elite in-state guys. Um, you know, here's the thing. I mean, call a spade a spade. The the whole situation at Michigan State with Curtis Blackwell, not ever gonna, it's not helping them in Detroit sure. at all, okay. uh, which is a big factor, in my opinion, that not one really gets written about a lot, but it's just you know common sense. Blackwell, a pretty highly respected guy in Detroit. Well, I was gonna say that because yeah, Michigan State, you can add more insight to this, but I do remember. I mean, they were getting, I think King, uh, Detroit King. Yeah. They were getting a lot of players from. I do remember at a time there was a time where it wasn't, it wasn't the seventeenth best player that was their top in state recruit. It was, no, you know, they no they kids out of. No kids out of Detroit either in this class uh, so far. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't see looking back. I don't like. I don't really see any crystal balls that, um, you know. I mean, for instance, Northwestern has two of the top ten prospects in state. Hmm. Maryland, Kentucky, Maryland and Kentucky both have two in-state commitments higher ranked than Michigan's Michigan State's top prospect. Hmm. You know, and so um, is there anyone? To, it, it, can we get specific at all? Is there anyone where this win and this clearly two teams heading in different directions, is there anyone notable on Michigan's board that that, that makes a difference with? Um, Maybe even a year or two down the line or anything? Well, I mean, you got guys like Spindler and, and Dellinger out of Clarkston. You know, that's uh, Rocco Spindler, Garrett Dellinger, two four-star guys out of Clarkston. You know, the type of guys where, again, I think Michigan probably led for Spindler either way, and I'm not sure how serious serious he was with Michigan State. But, I mean, again, that's just a sort of a notch on your belt in that regard. You know, and, and but really as it pertains to Michigan versus Michigan State on the recruiting trail, it's not so much about maybe it impacting individual guys in this class and then maybe in next year's class, but it's really more about going forward. You know, as far as just because, again, like you said, Michigan State really outside unless something and you know unless they find some kind of magic, like they're not going to be good again next year. And the longer that goes on, the worse it's going to be for their recruiting, and then the bigger the gap will grow. Because you know, Michigan not showing any signs of slowing down on the recruiting trail. Top, I think they're ranked 11th right now, but in line to potentially finish strong. And like I said, we I think we talked about before, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what happens when Michigan beats Ohio State because I don't think they've beaten them since I've been covering Michigan's recruiting. That's true. So if they, <laughs> so if they pull that off, then who knows? You know, it's hard for me to predict. It'd be good, obviously, but I don't know what that does because it's never I've never experienced it. But you have to assume that that'd be significant for them. Um, and that would increase that gap even more. So, 
always a recruiting impact. I mean, everything kind of comes down to recruiting. Recruiting is why Michigan State stinks right now. Uh, that 2016 class that, you know, I think last week, or I think what our, before our preview thing, and I, I maybe could talk about it a little bit, you know, I, I it's weird, and I, I thought maybe people would kind of jump on it if I said this, but I, I think that Harbaugh's had a, such an impact on Michigan State's decline in that solely because of this. In 2016, Michigan State signed, I think, the highest rated class that they'd ever signed. And it was a little out, out of the norm for them as far as they weren't usually the school that was going after highly rated guys for the sake of going after highly rated guys. One of the things, one of the cornerstones that D'Antonio built their program on was identifying identifying guys who fit their culture, fit, you know, the way they do things there, and mm-hmm. and, and that their evaluations were always very, very strong. You know, and then in 16, it was a little bit of a change of course in going after a lot of the highly ranked four-star type guys, um, and it backfired because that class, more than half of that class is gone. I think people... Uh, out there probably know a, a variety of reasons why that class, you know, fell apart. But you know that it's that that the residual effects of that class busting is the biggest reason that they stink this year. I mean, those would have been your 16 class. That would have been like your juniors and seniors right now, mm-hmm. and they have none of those guys. Uh, almost none of them. You know, Bocce was actually one of the lowest ranked guys in that class. Well, he suspended. Willikus was a walk on. He got. I mean, they got lucky. You know, with. Although he would he would have been fifteen. Never mind. Point retracted. Right. No, but still, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's like I'm pulling it up right now. Yeah, it was the seventeenth ranked class in the country, which is very high for them. And again, I know that doesn't sound like that's spectacular, but for them, that was like really high. Third third best class in the Big Ten, but you got, you know, King Robertson, Corley, Naquan Jones, Tristan Jackson, Cam Chambers, Demetric Vance, DeWeaver, Kenny Lake, Brandon Randall, Lacusa. So that's what 11 of the top 12 guys in that class did not finish at Michigan state. I mean, it's insane. Uh, the vast majority of them, I think lane is lane. The one that left early for the NFL. Right. But mm-hmm. um, otherwise, so, cause even he's not there, he's gone too. So like you could say their top 12 guys in that class, Noah Davis transferred out. Um, you know, that like, Half of the, like more than half of that class did I don't even think got through a second year at Michigan State. Hmm. They either transferred, they were the kicked off the team. That is that can bring you talk about going from thirty six and five to twenty four and twenty four. Something like that happening can absolutely force your pro, your program will hit a wall. You know because these were again Corley top one hundred guy. Naquan Jones, four-star. Jackson, four-star. Chambers, four-star. Vance, four-star. Kenny Like, I think, really was a four-star caliber guy coming out of high school. You know, none of those guys made any impact there. That will cause your program to hit a wall. And so, you know, I don't know if Har- I don't know if Harbaugh coming in changed the way that Michigan State, or maybe forced Michigan State out of their comfort zone rec- on the recruiting trail. But, I mean... It's got to be a possibility, you know, because Michigan came in, recruited really well out of the gates, as you would expect with the momentum under Harbaugh, just his his uh, 
reputation. You know, as a great NFL guy, a guy that won in college, developed pros, that type of thing, just and the Michigan name, you know, that they were going to come in on fire on the recruiting trail. And, it, um, yeah, I mean, so yeah. big recruiting. And, yeah, recruiting really always kind of tells the backstory for a lot of the big picture type stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, I mean, you could say the same thing about maybe not quite. Michigan hasn't. Michigan hasn't hit that big of a lull, but like 2015 class, well, we talked about how many Zach, players t- didn't work out there. Right, that. But you talk about think about this. We talk about the the long term impact is how many times have we talked about how long it took Michigan to rebuild their depth up front on the offensive line mm-hmm. because of how poorly that 2013 offensive line class turned out. You know, when they took six guys and not one of them. Kugler was the only one that finished his four years there and I think was the only one who started more than two games <laughs> in his entire career. Right. You know, and, and what happened? They took six guys, five of which were highly ranked four-star guys who had offers from everybody. Four of the five completely bust. Even with Kugler, I don't think he really ever lived up to what he had been heralded as as a recruit. And it brought their off. It took their offensive line you could almost argue until this season to finally not just have a good starting five, sure. but to finally have like young depth behind and guys who were not playing before they were ready, you know? So the, you know, macro view of recruiting can a lot of times always kind of tell the backstory as to, you know, why a program, why, you know, for instances like that for Michigan state, maybe as a program for Michigan up front in the offensive line, you know? So, Interesting stuff. I was like talking about that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So we can jump into questions now. Uh, let's let's start with all the listener ones. Uh, here's an interesting one. Go Blue, ten fifty five. I wonder if he's a Michigan fan. Uh, he has better win from a perception standpoint, Notre Dame or Michigan State. So interesting the perception standpoint because obviously objectively, the Notre Dame win is better. One team. I mean, they're still a top fifteen team. And it looks like, as as you know, this speaks to maybe getting to play ACC teams. It looks pretty likely that Notre Dame's going to finish the season ten and two, and probably go to a New Year's Six bowl. Uh, you know, they'll lose to Georgia and Michigan, two very tough road games. But at the same time, I don't know if they had that many gutsy, chest pounding wins in between. But regardless, the perception. You know, no one, no one can name Michigan's record against Notre Dame the past decade, but everyone remembers kind of how things go with Michigan, Michigan State, and last year certainly helped. I wrote this in my game story though. Even though they won in twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen, it wasn't really a satisfaction. It it wasn't quite as satisfying as I think Michigan fans wanted it to be. Because Michigan fans, I mean, they've been dreaming about you know forty four to ten or something to that effect ever since Harbaugh arrived, and probably since before then. Because D'Antonio beat the spread 10 straight years against the Wolverines. And so so even when they, you know, they, occasionally when they would lose, it was still, it was like, they, they surprised everybody, and Michigan kind of felt lucky to get out of there. So perception standpoint, which which one's more significant? Beating the top 10 team, beating the better team, um, maybe doing it right after a loss. 
getting revenge for last year's loss or figuratively, I mean, just completely flipping the script. Not flipping the script because they won last year, but completely asserting their dominance in the in-state rivalry. Which one's more... um, Which one is more... Well, which which one's better from a perception standpoint? Uh, perception in in how it may illustrate how good Michigan is. It has to be Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think from a maybe a fan's satisfaction standpoint, it probably would be Michigan State because of what you said. Uh, you know, one of those, yeah, kind of that type of game where you know if you've watched this rivalry every Saturday for. However long, you know, ever since D'Antonio's been here, like you said, I think this is that's this is the outcome that fans clamored for. You know, was to 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 dominate a D'Antonio-led Michigan State team. You know, and and so I think from a fan standpoint, yeah, I think Saturday's win uh, bigger in that regard. But yeah, as far as a more just impressive win, it has to be Notre Dame because Notre Dame is much better than Michigan State. And the other thing, too, is, you know, I still, it remains impressive to me that the way Michigan beat Notre Dame uh, in a monsoon where you knew they had to run the football and they were able to run the football right down their throats the entire game, you know, and, and dominate from start to finish. So, you know, that that's that's the way I'd look at it. Again, both, I mean, was it 89 to 24 Ooh, so far yeah. <laughs> against rivals one and two? I mean, you'll take, again, we talk, we've talked a lot about, can Michigan sort of save this season or whatever? Hold, hold that thought. There is a question related to yeah, that. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, um, I I think it's Notre Dame just because I, I do – I mean, which one was more surprising? I think ultimately that's kind of what the perception is of your team, and this is why the perception of Jim Harbaugh nationally and, and maybe you know outside of Ann Arbor, so to speak, is that he hasn't – He's been good but not great. Is that well? When how many how many results have been surprising under Jim Harbaugh's tenure? Surprising in a good way, I should say, uh, for Michigan. Surprising in a successful way for the Wolverines. It really hasn't been that many, and a lot of them have been against teams that were kind of middle middle tier, uh, like like say beat up on Northwestern in twenty fifteen or or well the Citrus Bowl is a good one, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, which one's more surprising? It was the Notre Dame one. I think, no, I don't know if any of us predicted it, but I think every single person going into this game had that sneaking suspicion that Michigan was just going to run them out of the building. And so from that regard, from my from my point of view, it's Notre Dame. But I've asked several Michigan fans which one, which one gave them more pride in their football team. And I, I, I have yet to have, I have yet to see one say Notre Dame. I mean, everyone said Michigan State. So I think, you know, the whole what was it at eight and one stretch that that D'Antonio had, or maybe it was at eight and two. I mean, that's a that hurts. That hurts uh, Michigan fans. That really did. And so, for them to have kind of again, they had won two of the last three, but to have a really emphatic uplifting smackdown I think really 
really changed the perception from Michigan fans, if that makes sense. The perception of the team from Michigan fans. The perception nationally, I do think the Notre Dame game changed it. Next question. Dan Grafe says, did D'Antonio turtle and try to keep the clock running in the fourth quarter? So getting a little specific, obviously the game was out of hand. I feel like he kind of did. I feel like, you know, it was... It was clear that the result was already decided. And I was a little surprised. I felt like they weren't they weren't doing it obviously so, but I was I was a little surprised at how much time they were letting go on the play clock when they're down 17, 24, um, you know, 31 or whatever, whatever the deficit was. It's a it's a it's a tricky spot for t- for coaches to be in because if you go two-minute drill and try to rush, you're more likely to make mistakes. Just like going for it on fourth down, you know, you're more likely to, uh, you know, if the other team gets it, then they can make it look even worse. And Michigan was prone to do that. They were they were in the mood to do that, I should say. But at the same time, you don't necessarily want to be conservative because then you aren't going to come back from that deficit. I felt like, I don't know if it was full turtle, but I do feel like they, they were, they understood in the fourth quarter what the result of the game was, and they were they were comfortable running more clock uh, to try to keep it from being, well, could it have been fifty one? Could it have been fifty eight? I, th- I I I do think, I do think D'Antonio was trying to get out of there without it being worse than it already was going to be. Yeah. Again. It's kind of weird that we're even having that, that. You know what I mean? That that's even a thing. But it is one of the things that crossed my mind in the fourth quarter as well. Mm-hmm. They just kind of packed it in. Let's get, yeah, let's get, let's get the hell out of here. You know, like I can uh, sympathize with it. I mean, I think everyone. No, I, I, no, I, I don't disagree. It's just, uh, yeah. No, I mean that's what that's really what it became by the end of the game. You know, it's one of those things that yeah, that's actually a really. I thought I'm glad he asked that because. I don't think that's one of those things we would have discussed necessarily, but it is something that did cross my mind uh, late in the game yesterday. You know, it was, uh, it was noticeable. So just for the, the statistics, Michigan State threw the ball nine times and ran the ball four times in the fourth quarter. However, I mean, I, I just still, more, more so like how long they were taking to call their plays. Because you know they have two-minute drills. You know they have hurry up packages to try to try to mount a comeback. And I just, I just don't think Michigan state believed that it, that it could do it. You know, if, when Cornelius Johnson is going for a 39 yard touchdown or, or when they, when they had the punt blocked and then Michigan immediately finds Nico Collins for a touchdown. Like if you're D'Antonio, isn't your reaction just like, well, that's done. <laughs> this isn't going to work. They, they, you know, it, Michigan was a buzzsaw. We've seen Michigan go to other stadiums and they just are playing a team where everything is clicking for them. Well, this was second second time in three three weeks, but this was Michigan's buzzsaw game where they were that team that nobody was going to touch. Uh, next question comes from Shadow Maze, who says, "Oh well, okay. We, there, there's there, there are there are some critics from yesterday's game." 
Why does it seem like Michigan has an epidemic of throwing the ball too low? Happens on wide open completions and at times with wide open incompletions. Happened a lot from Spate through Shea. So I do think he is correct in that there are a lot of balls that are underthrown. I I don't know that it's an epidemic, and, and I don't know if it's Michigan-specific. Yes, I, I understand that it's it's easy to watch teams like, like Oklahoma. It seems like they can just do whatever they want on offense, make it look really easy. But if you're not, I mean, unless you're watching every single game of another team, I don't think you can say, well, they never, I mean, teams throw the ball low. Teams have incompletions. Teams have drives that don't score touchdowns. I I see where he's coming from. And I for Shea specifically, I think a lot of times, a lot of times he he is not putting his entire strength into a throw. He f- felt like he changed it after two drives yesterday. Where I think I think his velocity was higher. He was just he was just throwing harder. You know, instead of throwing changeups, he was throwing the fastball. And I f- I feel like that arm strength has always been a thing because I'll tell you what I think Dylan McCaffrey is has done a few underthrows as well. Um, so I don't I don't know if it's an epidemic. I I do think that that was a common tendency, but I, you know with Spate, I felt like he underthrew a lot of receivers, and then at the end of the season, Pro Football Focus showed he was the best deep ball thrower in the Big Ten by a wide margin. And so, you know, maybe it's easy for us as viewers to forget, you know, say they complete a 20-yard pass, but what stands out more, the the 20-yard completion for a first down or the ball that was underthrown on third down? Now, d- depending on how, how you look at the game, it might be the latter. Uh, Shea Patterson completed... 14 passes of 15 yards or more yesterday. To me, I, I probably could have just answered the question with that. And I think Steve's going to do something similar. That's his style. Uh, Steve, what do you think of this question? It's just like the timing of it is really odd. Um, again, not saying I... This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Disagree even, necessarily? But I don't know, it's like almost like... Uh... It's almost like they're thinking just of that throw to Sainer still mm-hmm. and not of the, the, the next 25, other, <laughs> the other 23 like completions in the game. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's, you know, talking about, I think it, the question mentioned going back to spade. It's like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't think there's anything that they're teaching or coaching that is gonna say. <laughs> forcing the ball low. I, you know, so I, I don't know. It's a, just an odd time question, I suppose. I, again, like I said, I'm not necessarily even disagreeing. I just don't know. I think that's a takeaway out of yesterday's game necessarily. Sure. But yeah, yeah, because I, I, I do think it it has been an issue. 
Sure. Right. I don't know about epidemic. It has been an issue where Shea, and I still wonder because like man, some of the throws he had yesterday just had some some zip to them, and yeah. they they were ropes. And so I almost wonder if maybe and they just came off a of bye week, so maybe this is something he was able to work on. But is there something that he can do? You know, the the common phrase is plant your foot, or sling it, or you know things like that. I I wonder if there is a little bit more velocity in him that he's just not capitalizing on. That might be a part of it. He might just not have, I mean, I don't, I don't, I went back and looked at his recruiting profile. Arm strength was not the reason he was a five-star. It was the accuracy. It was the, it was the touch. It was the throwing in traffic. It was um, maybe seeing the field. And I think both him and McCaffrey and probably Spade, I'd have to go back and check arm strength was kind of like a seven out of 10, you know, for, for, for high profile recruits. So, um, yeah, I, I see where he's coming from. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah. As I said, I don't, I don't really necessarily disagree with the question. It's just, a just a peculiar. I don't think Michigan time to ask, I suppose. I don't think Michigan is coaching, throw it low to avoid a pick. Right. Well, no. And, yeah. and they know the, the question asker knows that I'm sure. But yeah, it, I, I don't know. Could just be it. Could be an arm slot thing. You know, I mean Patterson. I don't know what's Patterson's arm slot. Is he a three quarters guy? I I think right. I, you know, I like, thought it and, was like, pretty spe- normal. Or no, doesn't and, he go and, high sometimes? I'm not sure. So I'm not sure. I'm trying uh, to think because I know Spate. Know Spate specifically <laughs> had had a little bit of a lower had a lower arm slot on his ball specifically, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's I don't think there's as much a rhyme or reason type answer as it is. It might just might just be the type the way that each of these individual quarterbacks throws the football, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next one comes from Adil Ansari, who says initially a Big Ten title plus playoff would have been a successful season. Is beat all your rivals still considered a successful season for Michigan? So I think I said after the Penn State game, when you kind of saw a pulse, you saw, okay, well, this this clearly isn't a crummy 2017 or twenty or worse, like 2014. It clearly isn't a crummy team. This is clearly still a good team. Uh, you know, they responded with wins over uh, Rutgers, Iowa, and, and Illinois on the road, and then looked looked uh, dignified in their loss to Penn State. And I think I said then, I said, well, you know, if they can they can find a way to do it at home against their three rivals, then I mean ten ten and two with three wins over rivals, how many people honestly say that isn't good enough? I mean, certainly it's not as good as eleven and one or twelve and zero. But I don't know. I talked to a lot of Michigan fans and and the, the rivalry wins almost feel like miniature titles in a way because you get to just like you know you get I mean Michigan's gonna hang that Paul Bunyan trophy out in their facilities and all year Michigan fans will be able to talk the smack about how they beat Notre Dame by 31 and beat Michigan State by 34 so I think I think it'd still be successful you got to imagine they'd be in a New Year's Six Bowl so they'd have a chance at finishing as a top 10 team uh, yeah, I I think I think it is. I I wrote the column last week. If you missed it, uh, 
They have four weeks, and they can save their season. So, I'd say so. I mean, we, we mentioned you're always going to wonder what could have been. It's going to be at least a little bit bittersweet because if they find a way to beat Ohio State, well, I think I think you'd say that they're one of the top five or six teams in college football, but the ranking and their bowl selection won't reflect that. So, and and the and the trophy case will still be empty in that in as far as Big Ten and playoff appearances. So, I think it, I think it can still be successful, even if it is just a little bittersweet. Yeah, no, I pretty much agree. I was like, it would, let's say it would be, I would consider it a success, but I think it would still be fair to criticize the fact that they still haven't gotten to Indianapolis yet under Harbaugh. I guess that's about, that's where I would put it. That being said, getting over the Ohio State hump might mean more as far as for the future of the program than, well, let's say they come into, in two weeks, say they hadn't lost yet. And they got beat again in that game. Hmm, yeah, you know, um, then uh, you know what I mean. So uh, that I guess that'd be the interesting question to ask is, you know, I still think I think from a, from a macro standpoint, I still think getting past Ohio State is more important right now than running the table or getting into the playoff. If roles were reversed and Ohio State came in with two losses and 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 you know, they came in and ruined Michigan's season. Michigan didn't go to the playoff. That'd be more, like, the perception would be a lot worse than if, say, Michigan does the same thing to them in two weeks, I guess. That's what I think, anyway. I could be wrong, but, you know, yeah, I don't, you know, not only to win, but so far to have win in such dominant fashion against both your rivals, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if So if they do come out and if they can pull it off in a couple weeks, you know, it's got to be a success to some extent. You still can't say the season. You could not. You could not say with a straight face that the season was a failure. That's one. That's for sure. I don't know really. what the. Here's here's one way to put it. If they did that and they went ten and two and they went to you know got got to go to say the Orange Bowl. I don't know what an unhappy Michigan fan would be able to say. Like I don't know what the argument would be because like you can't say Harbaugh doesn't doesn't make the team better you can't say um you can't say the program isn't heading at least in a high level direction you can't say harbaugh can't win the big games you can't say harbaugh can't beat his rivals i mean really all you can say is the road my away games my expectations were higher or something i don't know i I guess sure i'm trying to think like how long say i well say i had a radio caller who was wanted Harbaugh gone I don't know how many different arguments they would be able to make in that case and that's that's sure. worth noting right I you know this is the, I mean we if we go back though to the before the season I mean you know we I believe I'm sure we ourselves at, at some point had probably said you know that this was the type of roster that they could get to Indianapolis with and they got mm-hmm. all three of their big rivals at home and you know that's not going to happen now so you know, again, I, I'm somebody, like I said, if they can pull it off in two weeks, and I think you consider the season a success, but I can see where, you know, they still haven't comp- accomplished the actual goals that I'm sure Harbaugh and, and his staff have for the program. And it is his fifth year, right? I mean, this isn't uh, year one, year two anymore. So it they're just, it'd be, a you know, kind of in that purgatory 
you know, as far as like it, it feels good. They're and, and the program is in a great spot, but they still haven't quite, you know, gotten to that, gotten over the hump. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but yeah, no, as far as like the, you know, firing and all that, that's stupid. I mean, that's not even worth addressing. So, <laughs> um, and that's regardless of what happens in two weeks at this point, in my opinion, because you could argue Ohio State's the best team in the country. So right. if they were to come out, if they were to come out and lose that game, or you know, I, I don't know. It's yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, a maybe an interesting question for another podcast is <laughs> which drought does Michigan need to get over more? The one in fourteen stretch against Ohio State, or the fourteen year drought from a Big Ten title? Longest both both of the worst in school history. Um, um, amazingly, given that the program it fell for a few years, but like the last four or five years have not been that bad. But it, that is something that's missing, as you mentioned, kind of a purgatory. Next question: Shane Majewski asks, uh, "The offensive game plan can make the OSU game interesting, can it?" So we've talked about. I think it might have been the last post-game podcast that we did. I know we had a bye week just now. We've talked about how that defense does seem better. Michigan's defense does seem at least a little bit better equipped to handle Ohio State this year. They've been working in zone concepts. Players like Daxton Hill and Brad Hawkins and their their, their speed upgrades over what they had before. Ambry Thomas as well. We've, We've mentioned that. And, you know, you could argue... Jordan Glasgow might be a speed upgrade over Devin Gill. And and maybe, you know, I don't think anyone's touching De- Devin Bush's speed. But it does seem like to be a little bit faster, a little bit more uh, versatile defense. So we've argued about the defense. Maybe it's a little bit more equipped for to, to handle Ohio State. Is the offense there yet? Because impressively... Ohio State's defense is ranked number one in the country. You know, we'll see how they. We'll have a much clearer understanding of this when we see them face Penn State this weekend. Because I don't think they faced, all respect to Wisconsin, I don't think they faced a offense that is capable of doing what Michigan did Saturday. Yet this season, have they even faced one that's even close? You know, because Wisconsin was, you know, Wisconsin. Ohio State's always done a good job stopping Jonathan Taylor. Right, and, right. You know, and that's and Jack Cohn just was never going to beat Ohio State in Columbus. I'm sorry, but yeah, I just don't think because I think I actually think Ohio State is going to wallop Penn State on Saturday. I don't even think it's going to be. Close I kind of do too. Yeah, I, I still do don't think too. Penn. I don't think Penn State's that good. So. And they haven't really looked great away from State. Granted, that's that's really I'm only looking at like one game there because they they blew out Michigan State in East Lansing but sure I feel like the Minnesota game was kind of a uh, Penn State's good I don't know if they're clearly not number four in the country but I kind of see them I I see them in the same spot as Michigan really kind of in that 10 to 18 range where they're gonna beat most teams they're just missing a couple gears at a couple different positions where they need uh, maybe more talent or more experience but yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think who's the best offense Ohio State has faced this season. Don't get me wrong, they you know because they have pros at every level. Obviously, yeah. I mean with Okuda, 
uh, you know, is is a top ten level pick right. at corner. Baron Browning starting to figure it out at, at linebacker. And then obviously we know about Chase Young and uh, what they have up front, right? But mm-hmm. at the same time, it is. I, I don't think they've faced an offense that's even close to as good as what Michigan, at least what Michigan can throw at can them. Throw, let yeah. alone, let alone, again, that it's on the road and they have faced nobody on the road at all. So that's kind of the other thing, too. You know, and uh, yeah, Michigan, Michigan can give them some problems because I think sort of similar as with Michigan is, you know, I know Ohio State is deep in the defensive backfield, but are they that deep, you know, to where a guy like Bell or Peoples-Jones can't cause them some problems because Okuda can only cover one guy. And I'm not sure the other guys they have are at that level, you know, and so I definitely think. Michigan can challenge them defensively. Really, the, obviously, you know, we all know what it's going to come down to. Uh, they just got to give Patterson time to throw because that's really what it's all predicated on. Much like offensively, I think they have to stop Dobbins. Defensively, you have to limit Chase Young. You can't let him run wild around the edge. Otherwise, it doesn't matter who the, who's throwing the ball and who they're throwing it to. You're not going to have any time to throw. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to force turnovers. So, mm-hmm. And that's... You know, that's where I think a lot of their defensive success is predicated is just on his ability. And that doesn't always mean it's him getting to the quarterback. It could be him drawing two or three bodies, opening things up for the other guys up front or for the whoever's blitzing or however, you know, they package it up. So. Right. Uh, regarding the question, I, th- I think I want to see one more week. I, I hope that the, that's not a cop-out to you, to you Shane. It's a, it's a worthy question. I just... I I go back to the fact that Illinois put up 500 yards of offense on on Michigan State, you know, and, and Brandon Peters threw for 370 yards or 369 yards. It's I just I can't tell how much of it is Michigan State being broken because Michigan's offense has definitely improved. I talked about it earlier on in the show, but Notre Dame and Michigan State, it was kind of. It was kind of a slow burn. I mean, they didn't. I think both games they put up seventeen points in the first half. Yeah, it's not like they were. It's not like they were torching the other team. And I think both of those defenses are not as good as what Wisconsin brought to the table, as what Penn State brought to the table. And I don't think I think Ohio State's probably the best defense they'll face all year. Throw in that Greg Madison and and Al Washington are involved, and that that Ohio State studies this game like crazy. I I think I I'd like to see them to 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 say that they can make it interesting for sure on the offensive side. I'd like to see them go and and torch Indiana a little bit. Because Indiana pretty solid defense that's going to be in Bloomington where where you're a little bit uncomfortable if you're a opposing team. Because that's, you know, I think the offense is where the deep home home road things are the most different. Because suddenly the offense, it's harder to communicate. I don't think Indiana's that loud, but it is harder to communicate. And, you know, the sight lines and the, the um, field feels a little different. You don't get... Uh, we've talked about the home road disadvantages before. I'd like to see one more week before I, before I declare uh, that this offense is ready. For Ohio State 
Next question, let's look at the kicker discussion. Um, do you think Michigan figured out its kicker problem? Um, I'm not, I, I don't know, because Nordine has shown it in flashes before, right? So that's kind of the – I think it's a really important – you know, I always say special teams doesn't get talked about enough. Um, kind of an underlying – very important storyline for the last couple games. We know Indiana is going to be should be a good football game. Indiana gives problem Michigan problems when they stink, let alone right. when they're all right, you know. And so, you know, and again, it's on the road, which we know. You know, still, I don't know if even Maryland would count that they've put four quality quarters together on the road this year. So, you know, I, I you could see it, but I think. Maybe we need like sort of similar answers that I think maybe to see it at least one more time before we say they've figured it out. Just because again with Nordine, all the leg talent in the world uh, will get opportunities in the NFL for his just the boot alone. Right. Just a matter of being consistent, you know. And and yesterday was a good start for him though. Weather was conducive to, you know decent kicking I was cold outside but not a lot of wind to deal with but again I mean when he's hitting 49 yarders that look like they'd have been good from 69 yards um you know that's potentially a really big sign for them because the thing with him is he can stretch the field for them if they need points when he's on so but I don't think you could say that they figured it out just because again we've seen him have some big games in the past and then sort of come out and struggle a little bit mm-hmm. you know in a follow-up so maybe they're on the way there to getting it answered but i wouldn't say that it's answered yet or figured out right well i i'm old enough to remember when quinn nordine went from potential all-american kicker to the most hated kicker <laughs> in on social media in the country in like three weeks so so no i i don't i don't think i could ever say they've figure i think i think you probably need like six or seven games to get me to say yeah they know what they're doing but even then moody seemed like the most consistent kicker of all and then he missed multiple kicks over a, over a couple of weeks and so uh, when it seemed like he had the job and nordine w- was done so i think no i i don't know if i'm ready to say figured it out uh last question Oh, do you want to do big picture, fun, individuals? Yeah, it's up to you. Is, is, there, is there one you want to ask? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's do... Okay, let's do this one. <laughs> Just because I like, I like poking fun when people look silly. Uh, <laughs> which, which much maligned Michigan player proved the doubters wrong the most on Saturday, because we mentioned Shea Patterson, we mentioned Ronnie Bell, uh, we mentioned Quinn Nordine, and we could throw some love to leading tackler Jordan Glasgow, who had eight tackles, uh, including four solo tackles, both team highs, quarterback hurry, uh, half a sack and half a tackle for loss, and I believe he's up to 71 tackles this season, uh, despite getting some flack from from social media and message board world. I'm wondering if there's anyone else that we could throw on that list, but regardless, uh who 
who proved people the wrong wrong the most? Uh, maybe maybe not not just this past game, but last couple weeks too. Uh, it's probably got to be Shea. Although I think Glasgow being named a Buckus semifinalist kind of puts a bow on. Yeah, kind of kind of puts all that criticism to a halt. Really, the thing with Glasgow is I think he played his worst game of the season against Rutgers, and it got you know, overblown to the fullest extent when really he's been really good for them in every other game they've had this year, you know. So I guess I could see Glasgow kind of maybe quietly being that guy yesterday too. But he's been he's been so consistent all year, like I said, outside of that one hiccup, and it just happened to be against Rutgers where mistakes are magnified times a thousand because you wouldn't expect, you know, guys to not play their best or not play a great game against Rutgers. Right. So Patterson, probably the easy answer though, right? Just because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just because of, you know, just maybe his best game that he's had at Michigan. And it was in a, like we've said throughout this episode, not taking anything to the bank based off of this performance and based off of how bad Michigan state looks. But again, it's still at this point in the season, you could not ask for more from, from Patterson in a, in a game of this, you know, in a rivalry game and a game of that magnitude. So, yeah, a couple other names. You know, didn't I don't think Mike Dana ever got hate, but I think people were down on him a little bit after he didn't come out and lead the team in sacks a couple games into the season. Carlo Kemp has been. Yeah, Kemp was Kemp was another guy that I thought of too. Yeah, you know, as uh, people thought he was a bad, like you know, that he wasn't a good fit defensive tackle or he wasn't big enough or good enough, but he's been. You know, it took him a couple games to get going, but he's been really, really, really good for them mm-hmm. the last six, seven weeks. Yep. Uh, tell us, you know, hey, he's putting yeah. he's putting together a nice he's, legacy. He's he's been good for a couple years, and I think fans right. really cooled on on the Metellus hate really last year. Uh, man, he's such a fun quote too. Uh, not even yeah. not even just the ones that make the headlines, but like he he puts a lot of thought into what he says. Uh, I'm glad, just from a you know, he's he's an easy guy to root for. I'll, I'll say that. You know, I, I he's he's a he gave this pregame speech to the team, so clearly the team responds to him. Clearly, this is a game he was fired up for. Um, how about how about the Flanagan crew with Devin Bush and and Mattel kind of being the guys that sort of said enough is enough with Michigan State. That's true. You know, <laughs> back to back years. It, Interesting that uh, guys from Florida. Well, really, you know, I talked about I was talking about with one of my buddies yesterday. You could go back to uh, seventeen. Wait, when's the year? No, was it sixteen? Sure. The first year, the first Harbaugh's first game in East Lansing that they also, which they also won with the lock the gates. I think that was Bush Senior. It was either Bush Senior or Bush Junior that tweeted out like lock the gates or something like that, <laughs> and. It's just interesting that it's, at least from a tangible standpoint, whether it's like social media or just whatever, you know, because Metellus did some tweeting this week, you know, kind of leading up to the game or whatever that, uh, yeah, a couple guys from Florida, kind of the ones that's, yeah, like like I said, sort of said enough is enough, you know, and and we're, you know, we're not going to let these, we're not going to let these guys kind of push us around or, you know, we're going to out tough these guys and and they've backed it up. Yeah. You know, but it is kind of funny that you said that with him 
you know, talking about this game, because it is, it's, it's him and Bush really have been more vocal about this rivalry than almost anybody uh, in the last two or three seasons, and like I said, they've answered the bell. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, yep, there's our seven questions, so you had two game balls, four takeaways, seven questions. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to read, uh, we teased a few different stories that we'll be we'll be writing in the next, or, we, or that we've already written, or that we're writing in the next couple days. The MichiganInsider.com, Michigan.247Sports.com. For Steve Lorenz, I'm Zach Shaw. This has been the Wolverine 24/7 Podcast. Hope you had fun. Hope you learned something, and we'll talk to you, Indiana preview later on this week. Thanks so much. Thanks.